Today's episode is sponsored by the John A. Hartford Foundation. For more than three decades, the John A. Hartford Foundation has worked to improve the care of older adults. The foundation is your essential resource for developing policy around cost-effective, age-friendly health systems. Learn more at johnahartford.org. I have a reputation for working with people on the other side of the aisle, and I'm glad to do it. But when you're cutting Medicaid by 40% and you're in the middle of an opioid crisis without any other answer for rural America than what we've got right now in terms of funding, it raises a certain level of question about what your intentions really are. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Senator Michael Bennett, the Colorado Democrat who's not a fan of this administration and its moves in health care. Bennett's an interesting figure in the health care debate. He's on the two key health care committees in the Senate, and he's pragmatic about the Affordable Care Act, and not afraid to criticize it, as you'll hear. And with Senator Tim Kaine, he's the author of Medicare X, a new plan to expand coverage. And you'll hear more from the senator after the break. But first, I caught up with Josh Peck, who is the chief marketing officer for healthcare.gov and is now helping run Get America Covered, a new organization dedicated to boosting signups for the ACA. Reminder, you can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. My favorite podcast app is Overcast. Please rate us, review us, and share us. We haven't gotten any ratings on our iTunes page recently. Would love to hear from listeners there. You can find links and time cues in the show notes, and you can find me at ddiamond at politico.com if you have feedback on the podcast. And now, here's Josh Peck of Get America Covered. Another open enrollment period is underway for the Affordable Care Act, but this time it's a little different. The ACA hasn't been embraced by the Trump administration. If anything, they have run away from making announcements, putting dollars behind outreach and ads. And now, Josh, we've got folks like you, ex-Obama folks who have come together to push awareness of enrollment, try and get people to sign up. How unusual is this moment compared to in previous years when you were inside the agency pushing for, for change? Like, how different is your day-to-day now versus what it was a year ago? Well, so thanks for having me. Um, I could not imagine a year ago that I would be uh, enrolling people uh, today. Uh, it is a, a job without any question that's best done by the, the federal government. They have the, the resources and the, the staff to do it. I will say that a year ago, uh, this this was an exciting time. This year, uh, the the feeling of that is is very different. Uh, in part because I don't get to see daily h- how open enrollment is going. So, are you relying on press reports? Are you relying on folks who are in good position to know what the numbers are and slip you some information along the way? Well, there there's certainly rumors uh, about how things are going, but the reality is that until official numbers come out, we we don't know for sure. And as we sit here and talk on a Wednesday afternoon, those numbers have not been put out by CMS yet. That's right. We right now the the only reporting that I've seen has been done by the uh, by the Washington Post on how the the first uh, day of open enrollment went, um, and it by all accounts sounds like it was a pretty fantastic day. Politico had some reporting there too, but yeah, the the first day has been twenty five percent ahead of last year in California, and twice as much uh, signups overall in some counts. 
That's right. And and not just, I mean, I think I've seen it in California, in Maryland, in Washington State, um, and the, the report on the, the federal exchange, too. One big difference this year is that there is outrage over the Trump administration, not just in healthcare beyond, but the Affordable Care Act has been supercharged with resistance. Getting people to sign up has become an act of resistance to this administration. And you've worked with celebrities who have stepped forward and say, we want to help too. As someone who was in charge of marketing for healthcare.gov, like what is the energy difference around this year's law or this year's effort versus last year when it was seen as a sure thing? Yeah, there's there's no question that there uh, is more political energy around the ACA this year than than last year. That said, I think that sort of I can't underscore enough how non-political the decision to buy insurance is for um, for the people who are d- deciding what's happening on the marketplace. Um, often, you know, the decision to purchase health insurance is a really significant financial decision, uh, and the political leanings uh, of the the person buying. We haven't seen them, um, you know, be a major factor in the past. Is that a component for some people this year? Maybe, but I don't think uh, that is the the sort of underlining difference between this year and last. Let's talk about where we are now. Early November 2017, you and other ex-Obama folks are pushing awareness of open enrollment. What sort of tactics are you using that you've been forced to use because you don't have the resources of the administration. Yeah. We uh, we took stock of what we did as the administration, and obviously a really important component of that um, last year was spending $100 million to, to get the word out. Uh, unfortunately, this year we don't have $100 million. Um, nor, nor do, does the administration. It's down to $10 million. That's right. That's right. Um, nor do we have the, the staff that, that we had or the, the in, internal information um, that we had, all of which helped contribute to getting the word out. What we do have, though, is a few years of uh, best practices under our belt uh, and knowledge of how it works and what makes a difference. Uh, and we have um, the will. And apparently that is is the thing that the administration doesn't appear to have. Um, and so what we're looking at is the things that we can do um, with the, the combination of the will and the best practices and the lack of budget. So what are those things? Uh, first, we're providing basic enrollment information. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people around the country that are in their local communities um, doing enrollment outreach, actually enrolling people. They need to be able to provide information about open enrollment um, to, to those people. And HHS is not doing what it did in past years to provide that basic information. And just to be really clear about what that information is, the deadline has changed this year. Open enrollment is half the length um, that it was last year. December 15th is the final and last chance to enroll. On healthcare.gov. It's different in some states. That's right. That's right. For the federal marketplace, um, December 15th is the the last chance to, to enroll. The... Consumers need to know that it's changed. They need to know what it is, to be perfectly frank, because so many don't. Um, and we need a healthcare. We need the the health and human services to get the word out. 
we're using what are effectively grassroots networks um, to, to, to get this information out. We're also working with influencers and celebrities um, to, to spread uh, the word. Uh, and we are, uh, we are working with national and local media um, because they have a, a commitment to provide basic information about these sorts of programs um, to their local communities. Are there any celebrities beyond, we've got Bradley Whitford from the West Wing, uh, Alyssa Milano from Who's the Boss and other TV shows. Are there other big name celebrities that our listeners would recognize? You know, our hope is to have a, a, a diverse cross-section of celebrities in a more strategic uh, you know, sense. Our hope is to have a, a diverse cross-section of celebrities because they all reach such different um, you know, groups of people. So hopefully in, in those final weeks, we'll, um, we'll have some people representing. Have you been talking with the Trump administration at all? I mean, as you're moving in parallel, there have been previous efforts in, in years with like Enroll America, which is disbanded and, and shut down. But that effort was started by ex-Obama campaign folks and allies of the administration and talked to the administration quite a bit. Are yeah. you talking to the administration? I'm not. Uh, when uh, when I was in the administration, um, I looked forward to my conversation with the transition team um, to talk about marketplace enrollment. That conversation um, never happened. Uh, and I think, to be frank, when I look at so many of the administration's decisions, they seem to have opened the playbook and taken the best plays and cut them from the plan this year. So I uh, I don't... D- I haven't been motivated to, to reach out to this administration to um, to try and, and coordinate with them because um, I really have every reason to believe that they're looking to, to find the, the ways that they can minimize HHS engagement um, around open enrollment with the intent of, of suppressing enrollment. Is it is it fair, Josh, for Americans to still be concerned about all the double-digit premium hikes that have been seen around the country and that many of these plans are unaffordable. The important thing to remember is that most uh, healthcare.gov consumers get subsidies um, or financial help. And those uh, that financial help has increased in, as well as the price of these plans. It, it moves up in lockstep. And that gets to the interesting paradox here. The administration, in trying to get rid of the CSRs as an act of hurting the Affordable Care Act, may have helped many Americans who are shopping for plans. Yeah, I think it, it may have backfired. So uh, the, the administration's decision to halt the cost-sharing reduction payments um, has created a combination of, of uncertainty uh, for, uh, for insurance companies, which always leads to them um, increasing prices. But it also has specifically led them to increase the, the cost of their benchmark silver plans. In doing so, um, they increased the, the 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 benchmark subsidy amount that consumers received. Uh, that increase can be applied to to lower level plans like bronze plans, which has created a very unique phenomenon this year, where a uh, where for example a fifty five year old couple making forty thousand dollars a year can in eighty five percent of counties in America find a zero dollar plan. That's something that that wasn't. I mean, it, it existed in in past years, but it was it was rare. And this year, this is an experience that is somewhat common. And zero dollars is, of course, extreme. There are even more people who can find plans for ten dollars or less, or twenty dollars or less. Um, you know, the 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 majority of people, um, the majority of healthcare.gov consumers can find 
plans for $50 um, or less. That was true last year. Um, that's even more true this year. Uh, we actually don't know the exact number because the administration hasn't released those numbers this year. Though there is this other population who is getting hit hard by yes. the CSR reduction because they're shopping off exchange. The premiums aren't being insulated when they're when they're buying. Yeah. And, and uh, th- so s- there's significant uh, price increases on average for people who are not receiving financial help this year. And there are a number of factors that go into why, but I think they can most easily be distilled as the Trump administration. Um, the, the decision, the, the Trump administration has made multiple decisions that have impacted uh, rates this year, but the most important of which is the decision to halt payments for cost sharing reductions. Um, that led insurers to very specifically and often, often publicly increase the, the, the cost of their silver plans. Um, just uh, a week or two ago, the, the Kaiser Family Foundation put out a report that state by state looked at the, the impact of that decision on rates. And depending on the state, they found that anywhere from, uh, I believe it was 7 to 38 uh, um, percent of the increases um, were directly caused by the, the decision to halt cost-sharing reductions. When you were at HHS, you had goals for enrollment for hitting certain marks at certain times during the enrollment period. Do you have goals now? Is there a number that you'd like to see enrollment hit by December 1st, by December 15th? In past years, we have sort of internally created goals. Um, Goals is probably a strong word, but sort of expectations for where enrollment might be along the way. I haven't done that this year. Um, But I do think that that if there were no... Uh, administration, if there were no interference for the, from the administration, our expectation is that enrollment would remain effectively steady at, at 12.2 million nationally. Um, that said, you know, the, there's, there's so many factors this year that are, that are different uh, that I think it's going to be difficult to, to, you know, know where we land. If we land under 10 million signups, how much does that hurt the Affordable Care Act moving forward? It's shrunk the population. It, it makes it less of a constituency to defend. That's true. I mean, uh, the, the, the fewer my, – my, my bigger concern with a, a shrinking um, population is uh, how, how the people who aren't in the, in, in the risk pool anymore – how they how they sort of decided not to be there. Okay. Well, Josh Peck, formerly of HHS, now of Get America Covered. And more information on Get America Covered is at getamericacovered.org. Thanks for making time, Josh. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we'll get to our conversation with Senator Michael Bennett in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. A message from the John A. Hartford Foundation. Healthcare for older adults in America needs to change. Poor quality healthcare harms older patients, causes families to suffer, and wastes money. The John A. Hartford Foundation believes that older adults should receive high-value, evidence-based healthcare that treats people with respect and dignity and meets their goals and preferences. For more than 35 years, the John A. Hartford Foundation has built a field of experts in aging and health and has committed to making more than 1,000 U.S. hospitals age-friendly by 2020. The John A. Hartford Foundation and its subject matter experts are a nonpartisan resource for developing policy around cost-effective, value-based, age-friendly health systems 
providing the tools you need to improve the care of older adults. Learn more at johnahartford.org. Michael Bennett has been a senator since 2009, when he was appointed to fill Ken Salazar's seat, and he had to fight hard for re-election in 2010 as Republicans capitalized on anger over the new Affordable Care Act. Since then, Bennett's been involved in the health care debate in various ways, including proposing a new plan with Tim Kaine to expand coverage. And on Wednesday morning, I joined him in his office on Capitol Hill to discuss health care matters. The senator was feisty. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. How are you feeling today after the Democrats won so many contested races in Tuesday's elections? I I feel really good about it um, because I think the American people are speaking up about an assault that's happening on the institutions of this democracy that are so vital, whether you are a Democrat or whether you are a Republican. We need our democratic institutions to work. And I think when they are being assaulted, especially when it's by somebody as important as the President of the United States, it's very important for all of us to push back. And I think that's what we saw last night. Was there a particular result, a race that impressed you, inspired you? Well, I'd say the Virginia races, all of the Virginia races, the the statewide races and the races for um, their state legislature, I think that to see a uh, Governor now Governor Northam run and win with the kind of margin that he had, I think, is uh, pretty telling. But we can't take anything for granted, and the American people um, are are going to want to have a compelling message in 2018 uh, from either party, and um, and Democrats have to be responsible for for creating that message. How helpful is it to have President Trump? as the opposition here and run against him. I mean, you didn't get to have that opportunity in your races, but how much is that contributing to the momentum that the Democrats are seeing? Well, I was actually on the ballot the same year that President Trump was running for president. Well, true, but he was not actually in office. You weren't pushing back on on him. That's true. Those were golden days of the Republic. Um, Look, I don't think this is about politics. I think this is about... um, about this experiment in self-government. I really believe that. And I think um, President Trump uh, colors so far outside the lines of what's conventional American political ideology. There's nothing conservative about him. There's nothing Republican about him. He is a reactionary force in our, um, in our, uh, the history of our country. And, um, and he's a force that um, speaks to, um, our darkest views of who we are as a country rather than speaking to the aspirations that we have for our kids and our grandkids. So I think it's deeply unfortunate that we are spending this time not devoted to the future of America, to the future of what our political system should look like, and instead having to fend off, as I say, attacks on institutions that we all should care about, including his daily ritualistic beating of uh, the leading journalists uh, in America by um, referring to them as fake news. Um, and I think it's important for every American to stand up now and to say that's not the direction that we want to head. And well, that's what you saw last night in Virginia. Let's take because The reason I say that, by the way, sorry to interrupt, is the margin was so big. Uh, in a swing state. I know what it's like to run in a swing state, and I know that every point that you get above three points um, is, uh, becomes a 
the people saying something, and last night was a wave election. And you're talking about all up and down the ballot, all the House of Delegates, which wasn't yeah. expected to be contested now, yeah. is in play. I mean, yeah. To your own point, that we spend so much time pushing back on Trump, thinking about Trump, and not focusing on the future of the republic, let's talk about some legislation that you and Senator Kane have pushed as something for the future of the healthcare system, yeah. Medicare X. Right. Why introduce coverage expansion bill, Medicare bill that Republicans aren't going to cotton on to while your party is in the minority? Well, one of the, well, because I'm trying to represent the people of Colorado. And what I've heard from people in Colorado, whether they are supporters of the Affordable Care Act or whether they oppose the Affordable Care Act, whether supporters of Obamacare or opposed to Obamacare, in general, people are deeply dissatisfied with the way their lives and their families' lives intersect with the American health care system. Congress has spent all of its time, um, in, as far as I can tell over the last nine years, in an epic battle about um, about 6% of the people that are covered in America. Uh, they're You're talking a, about the narrow ACA market. Yeah, that's an important market, and those 6% are very important, and we have to figure out how to do it properly. But the idea that the discussion about that has turned into has almost entirely informed the politics around health care is deeply disappointing to the people that I represent because they've got much broader issues than that uh, when it comes to cost, when it comes to access. And those issues are profound in um, urban areas, but when you get into rural areas, uh, they are people know they're having to make choices about their lives that no one else in the industrialized world is having to make. And so that's what the point of Medicare X is. It's a, it is a true public option. It's the opportunity for people to be able to buy into a plan administered by uh, Medicare. And I think what it does is just give people another choice, hopefully a choice that's going to be less expensive and, and a choice that could be um, uh, ultimately uh, fairly uh, commonplace around the country. And I, we... Tim Kaine and I uh, wrote this bill so that it rolls out first in rural counties, which is where it's needed most. Some people might look at that and say, well, why in the world would you do that? that those are places where people are going to say this is a Bolshevik takeover of our health care system, to which I say come to rural Colorado and see the choices that people are having to make right now, not because of Obamacare or not Obamacare, but because of our, the way our health care system works. And this, this, if we pass this bill tomorrow, it would be very helpful in meeting the criticism that people have of our health care system in Virginia and in Colorado and across the country. So that's why we introduced it. For folks who are listening who maybe haven't been to Colorado, is it safe to say that there are kind of three regions of Colorado? There are the urban areas, there are the rural areas, and there are the resort towns. So three different parts of the, the state that have different health care needs and health care services. Yeah, that's definitely a way to think about it. And by the way, for listeners that haven't been to Colorado, you should come to Colorado. It's the most beautiful state in the United States. We're, we're in your office, and basically your entire office is a branch of the Colorado, Colorado Tourism Board. It's with, true. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, there's some beautiful paintings and uh, pictures here. Um, you, you, you put your finger on it. So um, in... Um, and, it, and it's particularly in rural parts of the state where, where people have no choice of an insurance provider in many cases. I think there are 14 of our counties where there isn't a choice out of 64 counties. Um, 
But it's, it goes beyond insurance. So uh, I was in Frisco, Colorado not that long ago, which is a resort community or close to resort communities. And I went to visit the, the uh, clinic there, which is a beautiful clinic that they've built. The county built the clinic. And I asked the woman who runs it, I said, what, what, tell me what the payer mix is here. And she said, well, it's 33% Medicaid, which was surprising to me. That number, I would have expected that number to be higher in a rural county, but the reason is that it's more of a resort county. And, uh, and then she said, and 53% is uncompensated care. And I said, how can that be? And she said, these are people who are make too much money to get to be able to, to be eligible for Medicaid, but not enough money to afford private insurance. That is a profound dislocation in our insurance market. And I would say that the debates that we've had here on the floor or in the health committee or in the finance committee over the last nine years would do very little to address that problem. Well, I'd, I'd push back on your criticism that the ACA has been overrepresented. One argument I've heard, and I think I've heard it from folks in Colorado in those rural areas, is that the ACA came along and forced plans that might have been cheaper, if less comprehensive, to go away. And the ACA options are too expensive for them, and they end up in that gap. I think that's a fair argument as for as far as it goes. But I guess what the way I would push back on that is, I don't know why people in rural America should have to settle for insurance that no one else in the industrialized world has to settle for. In other words, why, just because you live in a rural place, why should you have to pay for insurance that's of no use to you, that doesn't cover essential health benefits? And that has been the theory of the, the case for the Ted Cruz's of the world who, you know, use the word freedom to describe the freedom people would have to buy really terrible insurance. Uh, I, I don't agree that that's where we ought to head. But if the price point is so high that maybe you're buying that essential health benefit package, but it's so much of a person's income that it might and that's, lead to... And that's why Medicare X is why... That's why I introduced Medicare X. I mean, look, to me, the most legitimate criticism of the Affordable Care Act, and there are others, but the most legitimate one is somebody who says, I can remember it precisely when it happened in Route County, but I've heard it in other places in Colorado. That's where Steamboat is. And somebody said, Michael, you're forcing me to buy insurance. There's only one provider in my, insurer in my county. The price is really high, and the deductible is really high. So you're making me buy something that's of no use to my family. I think that's a completely legitimate criticism. And so my solution to that is Medicare X, which will give people the opportunity to access the same provider network that Medicare has, will give people the, the ability and, and providers the ability to use a reimbursement, reimbursement schedule that's familiar uh, to people. I very seldom get a complaint in my office about Medicare, very seldom, very, either from a pr providers or from uh, or from patients. What what I get instead are complaints every single day from people who have bought private insurance, and then when they're asking, not asking, when they're saying, my kid is now sick, I'm now sick, please fulfill your contractual obligation to supply me health care, they find themselves on a tel the other end of a telephone call from somebody who's got all the time in the world to deny their claim when they've got to go about their business. You joked about Medicare X being perceived potentially as a Bolshevik plan. I, I don't think that would be the case. You're getting to it. Medicare is so well thought of 
and it's a brand name that people on Republicans and Democrats have come to like. Well, How- well, look, they called a they called a they called a healthcare plan that reinforced the private insurance market in America a Bolshevik takeover of the healthcare system. So there's no reason they wouldn't say it about this as well. But I think what we're doing is being responsive to the place that needs it most. Now, we say after the first year, we, we go to rural counties like the ones I described. So you're talking later, 2020, 2022. And yeah. 20, yeah, and then two years later, we go to all counties. So anybody, you know, so if you live in Denver, uh, this would be available to you then. And I think it would be very appealing to people that are living in Denver. I've asked your colleague, uh, Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz, about his plan, Medicaid buy-in. And then there's obviously the Bernie Sanders, right. Medicare for All plan. There are a bunch of different Democrat-backed coverage expansion ideas now floating in, in the ether. Do you worry about that confusing voters or stepping on each other's efforts? I, I don't worry about that at all. I think that it'd be, I think having a, um, having people's different ideas and then figuring out what the best ones are is the way this all ought to work. That's the way this Congress ought to work. Is, is your idea the best idea? It's definitely the best idea. First of all, it's got the best name of any uh, because you can't beat Medicare X. That's very memorable. It's yeah. very memorable. I'm and pretty it's sure better I'm... for other reasons, but that because it has Tim Kaine on it, that's another reason it's better. But but I do think what the party believes is that we should have universal coverage for people in America, and that we shouldn't be the only industrialized world uh, country in the world where. People have to interrupt their lives in really profound ways to deal with health care, which is the problem that we face today. It's the problem that we faced before the Affordable Care Act was passed. And so that principle is, is an important principle, the idea of universal coverage. I think we should have a debate about how you get there. Well, you're running ahead of my next question, which is, is your plan a path to universal coverage it seems to be less so than, say, Medicare for All. You're staging things up. It kind of slots into a gap in the market rather than expands immediately. Yeah, I think, I think it slots into a gap in the market. It's something that people can get used to, and then, and then we can see how things evolve. It's not a command and control answer from Washington, D.C. A year ago today, Colorado Care, the plan to have a single-payer system in Colorado, failed. You were against that plan. I'm curious what the political lessons were from pushing single payer, not Washington command and control, but on the state I level. Think, I think there are two. One is that um, I believe people are really fatigued about the extent to which healthcare dominates our politics, but they're worried about it. So last night, the exit polls in Virginia said that healthcare was one of their um, main concerns. And that that doesn't surprise me at all. I'm concerned. I hear about it all the time in Colorado. I, I believe the exit poll was 37% of voters said that healthcare was their number one concern. Yeah. It far outpaced yeah. every other issue like guns or yeah. taxes. And I think one of the reasons they're concerned about it is they see in Washington, they see it has become a political football, you know, and all the attempts to repeal and replace and all that. And what people would like is for there to be a thoughtful political discussion that leads to a set of reliable, predictable, less expensive outcomes for their families. And I think that's where Medicare X fits in. And I also think that's one of the reasons why single payer was rejected in Colorado so profoundly last time. I think a second reason, which is something that the proponents of the the bill in Washington are going to have to come to grips with, actually a second and third, 
is the the sticker shock. I mean, the 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 amount of revenue that would have to be raised, taxes that would have to be raised, to pay for that single player plan in Colorado was of great concern to voters, and they were not persuaded that that would somehow balance out based on the lower cost of the plans, which is an argument, by the way, I'm sympathetic to because I look out into the world. I'm not an idiot. I can see that places that have single-player plans tend to do health care much more cheaply than the United States of America does, and I think we should look at that and, and learn from that. The final point about it is that there are a lot of people in Colorado and in America who get their health insurance from their employer, and uh, I think it's about 178 million people in the United States, and the polling suggests that about 80% of them are very satisfied with that insurance. I remember when the Affordable Care Act was rolled out and um, some thousands of people lost their plans for the reasons you said earlier. Remember, President Obama said, if you like your plan, you can keep it, and then there was a lot of controversy because some hundreds of thousands, I think, of people lost their insurance because of the requirements. Yeah. Exactly. And, and there was a general freakout as a result of that. Um, and I think we at least need to consider that question when we think about the 178 million people that are insured, insured through their employers. One, but, one. but again, the, the, the fundamental principle is universal coverage for people. One more question on this push for universal coverage in Medicare X. We're looking at the Democrats, you, Kane, Murphy, Sanders, others who have, have pushed this. Who will be the first Republican to join in this push? You've worked with Republicans. You've crossed the aisle before. Is there one out there who has expressed interest in well, any of these plans? I don't want to name names because I don't want to prematurely scare anybody away, but I haven't had any trouble finding Republicans to work with on on the HELP Committee, the Health, Education, and Labor Committee. And my, my hope is that when people come to see this as a real answer for what's ailing the insurance markets in rural America, which is, tends to be more Republican than it is Democratic, that there'll be somebody who says, that's, that's a piece of business I'd like to be part of. And I think in the meantime, what I'm doing is talking to county commissioners in rural parts of my state, talking to rural hospitals in, in rural parts of my state, and um, we're getting a very good response. You mentioned the HELP Committee, which you sit on. You also sit on finance. So the two committees with jurisdiction over CMS, HHS, agencies you've gotten to know. I wanted to ask you a question or two about that world. Seema Verma, who runs CMS, on Tuesday said that it's time to add work requirements to Medicaid. She said that the last administration, the Obama administration, had the bigotry of low expectations that people on Medicaid should be proving that they're they're working to get it. Any response to that? Is she right that there is? I guess my response to that is what you would say about all the children in Colorado that are on Medicaid. Do they have to work? Or all the people that are in nursing homes who've spent their, who have spent down their entire life savings for the privilege of being in a nursing home paid for by Medicaid, do they have to work? Or the people in Colorado that are already working two jobs in the, the most powerful country on the planet and still can't afford health insurance or, 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 or earn so little money 
that they're eligible for Medicaid. So that's what I would say. And I think um, instead of insulting the people that I represent, I wish they were working to try to figure out how to stabilize our health care system. That's what we need to do in this country. I'm deeply skeptical of the Republican agenda on this question. And it's not that I haven't, as I said, I, I have a reputation for working with people on the other side of the aisle, and I'm glad to do it. But when you're cutting Medicaid by 40 percent and you're in the middle of an opioid crisis without any other answer for rural America than what we've got right now in terms of funding, it raises a certain level of question about what your intentions really are. We reported on Tom Price and his... I wish you were working harder to figure out how the school children in my old school district, the Denver Public Schools, where I was the superintendent, had access to quality health care, had access to quality dental care, didn't have to miss school because their parents, unlike parents all over the industrialized world, don't have access to primary care doctors, don't have access to dentists, don't have access to quality insurance. I'd love it if the head of CMS were thinking about that. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to Seema Verma when you say... I'm sure Seema Verma is listening to your podcast, so I'm talking to her. Okay. Well, we'll make sure that that message is included <laughs> in the audio. The, the other question I had about CMS and HHS was about who the next HHS secretary could be. We reported on Tom Price, his use of charter jets. I believe you saw that reporting. As part of that, I went back and watched... Yeah, I did see that reporting. I watched some of your questioning of, of Price in, in the hearings. You were very aggressive about whether Republican plans would expand deficit and, and debt and, and how fiscally responsible they were. I'm curious if there is another nominee for HHS secretary, what would you ask that person? What would you push on I'd, now? I'd want to know, I would, I'd push on that person with the concerns, as I said earlier, of my constituents about the healthcare system that we have. You know, a healthcare system which is too expensive, where there's not enough choice, where there's uh, not enough predictability, and what they're going to do to get us out of this political morass that we're in Anybody can come here and be a secretary or a senator and repeat the talking points they heard on the cable television last night. Anybody can do that. But that's not leadership. And when it comes to health care, the American people need some leadership. They need some principled leadership. They need to deflate the political nonsense. I think we've carried this as far as we can carry it. Uh, and we, we need to start addressing the issues that people are actually confronting in their lives. So I'd be interested in whether they'd support Medicare X as well. And the point I was making to Price, and now it's even more resonant, I think, in his confirmation hearing, was just my frustration that for 10 years, that I've, I've almost been here for 10 years, I can't believe it, these guys that think they've been sent here to dismantle the federal government, and that now I'm not talking about Republicans, I'm talking about the Freedom Caucus and their ilk in the Senate, in the name of fiscal responsibility, have basically ground down our budget process into smithereens. So we have had something like 30 continuing resolutions in the last 10 years. We've had weaponized government shutdowns. We've, and none of it has done anything to get us in a better fiscal position at all. And then the minute they're in charge, and then after all that misery, they nominate and we elect a guy who promises to pay off the debt in seven years, give us the biggest tax cut that we've ever had, increase defense spending, 
and leave entitlement programs exactly the same way. And now they are giving that massive tax cut, which is going to create a huge uh, deficit, much bigger than what we have today. And when I consider the fact, when I think about my kids in the Denver Public Schools, for example, the kids in Colorado, think about the fact that we are now spending 35% less as a government on domestic discretionary spending as a proportion of GDP than we were in 1980. It makes me start to wonder what our priorities are. And, and you know, Price was one of those Tea Party guys who, who said this was all about fiscal stuff, and then he did, thought nothing about policies that blew holes in that budget. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, you're a senator. You have lots of thoughts about lots lot. of important things. I'm not, I'm not sure they're thoughts. <laughs> well, they're not talking points, so that's good. The, the one other help qu committee question I had the bipartisan bill. My staff is sitting over there wishing they had given me talking points. I know that. We, we as the media love when there are no talking points involved whatsoever. So I, I think the, the help committee push to have a bipartisan patch for the ACA, why did it die? How much of that was President Trump waiting in? How much was GOP leadership saying? It was both of those things. And I, I, I hope it's not dead. This is the Murray Alexander bill. Lamar Alexander, there's not a more capable legislator in the, in, in the Senate than Lamar Alexander. And Patty Murray is an extremely capable legislator as well. And there's a reason why that committee works so well. Um, it's because of the two of them and the, and the membership on that committee. We've done important reforms of the FDA. We've done, um, we rewrote what used to be called No Child Left Behind, the Elementary and Secondary School Act. And now we have, again, this very tiny piece of legislation that deals with even in this case, less than 6% of the people that are insured, it may be even closer to 1% because we're talking about continuing the CSRs, the, the, the end, which stands for cost-sharing reductions. Cost sharing reductions. Is that a quiz from a former superintendent? That was a quiz superintendent? from a former school superintendent. I'm glad I passed the only question, yeah. Um, but, uh, well, I want this to be a conversation, the two-way street. <laughs> but, but it's a small bill. Every single person, all, virtually every person that testified in front of the HELP Committee, which was thoughtful enough to actually have hearings and ask the American people, what do you think we should do to stabilize our health care markets? Yeah. The answer was extend the CSRs. There were some people who said give us some more flexibility, which we also do in this bill. No one said don't stabilize the CSRs. And I think that's important for the listenership to understand because the guy who's screwing this all up right now is Donald Trump. Because even before this legislation was in front of us, he was threatening not to fund the CSRs, even in the short term. And now he's saying he can't support this bipartisan legislation that is precisely responsive to the bipartisan testimony that we had. This is all about politics. I mean, it, and, and it's not about the Affordable Care Act. It is about somebody going out of their way to destroy part of the Affordable Care Act, and that's President Trump. And I, I hope Mitch, Mitch McConnell will uh, support Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray's effort to get this to the floor to vote. This is not fun and games for people li living in Colorado. This means whether they're going to be able to afford insurance in the private market or whether they're not on the exchange or whether they're not. Yeah, and we're looking toward end of year for maybe movement on that. I, right. I, right. I had one or two questions about your career before we wrapped up. And one is just your family background is one of leading journalism. Your father was the CEO of NPR. 
your brother's the New York Times opinion page editor. Why aren't you doing my job, considering you've got the genes for journalism? I, I, uh, I think, I don't know. I sometimes wonder, sometimes people say, well, look, you've, you've won the race. And I say, no, I didn't win the race. There are 100 senators. There's only one editor of The Atlantic. There's only one uh, editorial page editor at the time. You're talking but, about your brother. Yeah. yeah. But I do take this, I, I'd like to think it's not personal. I, th I think just as a citizen, I really find the president's assault on the media appalling. I mean, it's appalling, first of all, because it's clear that he's doing it because he can't withstand scrutiny. And he's trying to um, demonize the press as a way of dealing with that. But it is when he, when, when the White House publishes a list of terrorist attacks that the White House claims have not been covered by journalists, and then newspapers and journalists all over America have to put hyperlinks on the front page of their uh, websites saying, no, actually, Mr. President, we did cover the very acts that you're talking about. And when you know that journalists have literally lost their lives, been beheaded in the Middle East, trying to illuminate what's going on there to tell us what ISIS is doing or to explain the situation in Syria, it's appalling that a president of the United States would do this. And this is, there's a reason the founders wrote this into the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson famously complained about the press. In his second inaugural address, he talked about, he went out of his way to talk about how the artillery of the press had been leveled against us, he said. But what he then said was that in a democracy or a republic, um, the antidote to that is speech, not marginalizing the press and not attacking the press for doing its job. It's not that people need to agree with everything that they read. In fact, you should read everything that you read with some skepticism, some skepticism and understanding that there's a point of view behind what that reporter was reporting or what that editorial writer was writing. But to reject edited content in favor of people spouting off on the Internet seems to me not a useful thing for the leader of the free world to do. Does the media usually get it right about you? Um, yeah, in general, I think, it, I think in, yeah. I mean, I, I'd say this, though. I would, in thinking about my old job being superintendent of the Denver Public Schools, I was so fortunate because th at that time there were two very robust daily newspapers in Denver. And one has the, gone away. And one has gone away, the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. And those education reporters and those editors and those editorial page writers knew they had a competition with each other to make sure that they were getting the accurate story and that they were telling a very important story which hadn't been told, which was a story about the catastrophic outcomes for kids in our community in terms of academic outcomes. And, and that needed to be illuminated in order for us to be able to make the reforms that were necessary to begin to change the district. That work would look very different today with one daily newspaper that's really strapped for, um, for reporting. One last, resources. one last question. We're surrounded by books in your office. I was talking to you before about some of the books on the table. Behind you, I think I see Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, who was our guest last week. I just knew you were coming in. That's why I put it over. Very strategic. Uh, what, what are you reading right now as you fly to I, and from? Right now, I'm re so, so it is when I fly back and forth, and I, um, I uh, um, 
gave up about after having said all those nice things about journalists and my brother and everything about uh, seven years ago I um, gave up reading newspapers on the airplane and replaced them with books and I also replaced them with actual books not iPad books because I realized I wasn't finishing anything I started something recent that I've re- re- uh, read that I'd recommend strongly to your guys or to anybody who's listening is um, Evicted which is a book by Matthew Desmond that won the Pulitzer Prize he went, He's a MacArthur Fellow. Is, it yeah. was an amazing piece of reporting. Speaking of reporting, he went to Milwaukee and he lived in a trailer park in Milwaukee for a number of years. And um, and he writes about ha- housing insecurity in in an American city. And it's hard to, you know, if you, if you finish that book, you say to yourself, I cannot believe that this is the United States of America. But it is the United States of America. And that's why we've got to get focused on um, the actual needs of this country and to get a politics that's actually responsive to those needs rather than chasing each other around in this endless partisan exercise in Washington, D.C. that is not getting us. It will never get us where we need to go. Well, we will see what happens with your legislation and where it takes us. Thank you, Senator Bennett, for making time for the Thanks conversation. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Senator Michael Bennett and his team and to Josh Peck from Get America Covered. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.